0: Welcome to the Social Behavioral Coffee Hour, the Center for Social and Behavioral Science podcast series at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Our goal is to provide a platform for guests to discuss and explore themselves, their disciplines, and the broader context in which they research, work, and live. This includes the good and the bad, and the beautiful and the messy. We aim to discuss human nature and how to build a better world using behavioral science. And if we can, we'd like to have a little fun along the way. How do governments use evidence to become more effective? The following is a conversation with Dr. Jacob Bowers, associate professor of political science at the University of Illinois. In this episode, Jake shares his experience living in Chile during Pinochet's rule and how it shaped his interest in political science and evidence-based government. We'll also talk about the evidence-based policy movement and about the different organizations pioneering social behavioral science to improve the lives of its citizens. And we're here with Jake Bowers. Jake, thank you so much for joining us today. So Jake, can you tell us a little bit more about the story of how you got interested in political science?
1: Sure, um, I, uh, I, I got really interested in political science, because, mostly because I lived for a year in Chile as a uh, exchange student in high school. And I, I went to Chile, not because I knew where Chile was. In fact, I wanted to leave my house. I was sick of high school. Adults never understood me, too much gossip in the school, people weren't serious. So I I applied for an exchange program and said, I'd love to go to Norway or or Italy. And, um, you know, my back, my mother's Italian-American. And so halfway through my junior year, they said, um, you're going to Chile. This is a, a program called AFS where you don't actually get a choice of where the, whether they're going to send you. I had to look it up. We discovered that in 1987, Chile was still under Pinochet's dictatorship. Mm-hmm. There's some family drama, but, you know, a few months later, I get on a plane and go to Chile and, and live with a family in southern Chile. Uh, the guy was an electrician in a steel plant, and the uh, the mother of the family owned her own hair salon, and we lived in government-provided concrete block buildings, like project-style buildings in, in a city called Talcahuano in southern Chile you can imagine these like concrete buildings with um, surrounded by kind of like fields of mud with like trash and feral dogs and in it Um, and then uh, you know that's where we would play soccer so it was not a a fancy place to live uh, and um, and there were got police carrying like machine guns around and there were people who are and there were people you would eventually hear about about what to say and what not to say so that the police wouldn't come to get you and and you would go to soccer games and people would whistle certain kind of songs that would if you'd understood anything you understood that they were saying he will fall he will fall the dictator should fall but they would only be like a whistle it would be like that's the that was the song um so i was looking at all of this and i was thinking what is going on why would anybody kill other people to take over a country for this reason. Like you, you know, shouldn't you be able to talk it out? <laughs> like like I just right. I just didn't get it. It just seems so irrational. And then why would these young guys with the machine guns patrol the streets and go along with I mean like this was a society where, you know, this was about ideology. This was about communism. And people were willing to like kill each other over whether you should redistribute more money to the poor or not. And so that was confusing. And then it was confusing to watch people go to protests. And I was, and I I remember talking to somebody and saying like, look, it's been 17 years or not at that point in time, 15 years of a dictatorship. What, what's happened? What happens at the protest? And they say, well, we go to the protests and then they either use water cannons or they beat us and they take some of us to jail. And then, we come back and do it again. And I go, well, if you know that, why are you <laughs> going to the protests? And also in the small, like rural towns, the people who have the water cannons lived on your block. Like, cause mm-hmm. everyone's they everyone is everyone's cousin. So, right. so it just was mind. Like I just couldn't get my mind around all of the human behavior surrounding this, you know, what was happening there. Of course it was, I was a product of like suburban Baton Rouge, Louisiana um so so I I just began to puzzle that a ton right and that was right before I went to college as my junior year to the senior year of high school so at that point I knew I had to be involved in the social sciences in some way or another because it 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 was really not okay to have coups kill people <laughs> and disappear people it wasn't okay that at the time I lived in Chile you know Nobody had telephone. Like you know, the 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 middle class family that I lived in was the only family with a telephone in the entire building. Um, you know, people had like two pairs of pants, and this these people were were fine. Like we were always eating amazing quantities of food, but the kind of inequality and in security, the inequality and and in, 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 uh, in uh, economic inequality, all of that was really really kind of emotional to me. So anyway, I I was clear to me I had to be in social sciences going to college, for sure.
0: Yeah. Did you ever um, partake in any of these protests yourself? N-
1: no, it was too scary. Yeah. Um, there was a story about another kid from the exchange program who did partake in the program in, in a protest and was, like, jailed. And then the yeah. whole organization had to, like, get him out of jail. And it was, I mean... It, it was pretty clear, like, as an American and as a student, as a part of this program, there were all these contingencies in place. And, and in fact, yeah. the reason to do the program and not just find a friend who lives in another country to live with was, in fact, to because the program could airlift you. This mm-hmm. is the, the program is called AFS, and you know they had people going to Jordan, they had people going to Italy, they had people going everywhere, and it was, and and it's an amazing program to to put kids in you know, ordinary life situations. I mean, again, like my daily life was like eat copious quantities of potatoes and, uh, you know, deliciously seasoned, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and like walk to walk back and forth to school where I didn't understand a word of Spanish, you right. know, Uh but like that, that Anyway, so, so no, I did not myself participate in any explicit protests and mostly because it was too scary. I mean, I listened to a lot of music that was, that was, uh, censored. So people had these, there's a folk singer named Silvio Rodriguez from Cuba and, or there's, there's a, there was a group named called Intimani and their records were like hidden under people's beds. Wow. And so we would, li- we would learn to play those on the guitar and stuff like that, and, but not out, you know. on the plaza or something like that
0: yeah but that makes a lot of sense right you're like guest in another country and so you probably have to be on your better behavior otherwise you know potential repercussions for sure and
1: and everybody around me was too I mean it's not like the other the most of the high school students did not want to get in trouble I mean they they might in a crowd of people at a soccer game all whistle the song but they're Mm. not going to go up to a police officer and say like down with Pinochet yeah and I never saw the graffiti, the people writing the graffiti, but you'd always see the graffiti all over, you know? Right. And so
0: you've, from this experience said to yourself, I've got to be a part of the the social sciences. Where did your trajectory take you after that?
1: Well, I thought that what I needed to do was to study Latin American studies Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: to, uh, study economics. Um, and because I thought that economics would help deal with the, the the economic inequality part of things, because, you know, at least in Chile, the, the the debates were about like, how do we organize ourselves in terms of economics. And so I took the first, I chose my college, I, I really wanted to go to a liberal, a cool, funky liberal arts college mm-hmm. at Carleton. But I got into Yale University, and Yale had an actual Department of Latin American Studies, whereas Carlton had one course on Latin American Studies that they offered once in a while. And so I went to Yale, even though the people in Carlton were so cool and funky, and uh, I was was so attracted by it. So I showed up at Yale, and I took the the math-intensive econ sequence. I always liked math and You know, earlier in my life, I wrote a lot of computer programs to create Dungeons and Dragons characters.
0: No kidding. You wrote computer programs to do
1: that. (laughs) Yeah, because we didn't trust each other. Like the seventh graders would always show up to play Dungeons and Dragons with these Dungeons and Dragons characters that were improbably uh, powerful. Uh, And and so and then they would make up all these stories about how it was we should believe when they rolled the dice that that they got these incredibly high scores on strength and wisdom. And so we wrote computer programs uh, uh, in basic uh, and we would force people to generate their characters using our computer programs uh, (laughs) because we were like, this is not okay You can't show up with an overpowered character every time.
0: I say this as someone uh, who identifies themselves as a nerd in a very loving way. That you somehow found a way to make D and D even more nerdy.
1: Oh yeah, and, we and did. I think
0: that's amazing.
1: It was fun. It was super fun. And we had we had. And when I was in this is in seventh grade, we were affiliated with our, our parents were affiliated with Miami University of Ohio. I lived in Oxford, Ohio at that point in time, and we had these portable computers. They were called Osborne computers. They looked like suitcases. They weighed about twenty five pounds. The screens were like about, I don't know, six inches Mm -hmm. wide. Uh, But you could lug them to your, if you could get your parent to let you take it out of the house, you could lug it to a friend's house and you can, you could print these things. So anyway, I always had like that nerdy side. And so I was like, I'm going to take the math version of econ courses. And I also always tried to take small courses. So a twenty-person course. I always mm. I, I spent all a lot of time arguing my way into twenty-person courses and out of a hundred-person courses. Um, but by the end of the year, all I understood was that economics was the study of calculus. Like mm. it was just, and I'm okay with calculus, but it wasn't. I you know the I didn't see you know, the people deciding to go and be beaten again. I I didn't, I didn't see, uh, you know, that caring so much about, about, uh, I mean, I didn't see why one would kill anybody over anything that we were seeing, like the, Mm -hmm. the, the emotional part, like the violence that I was seeing, the fear, um, uh, it wasn't there at all you know it it was like maybe it was about buying and selling or something but it was really it was it was so I, I it was like this is not right and of course I'm on a college campus and there are people going to protests and you know there was like a an encampment an anti-apartheid encampment. so it, it's really hard it was really hard to be in in the econ major because it felt totally divorced from the concerns that I had or that was pushing right. me into this course. The the other thing that I that pushed me into social science is that when I was in high school, I went to so I lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I went to a school that had been historically black high school. It had it had been desegregated two or three years before I showed up. So you know, my I was in a group of people that were, uh, that were in the minority in terms of our you know American identified race in this school, and so again, like, you know, you walk around and. And people are different from you, like the neighbor, this is a neighborhood school, but it's not the neighborhood I lived in. Um, and the history of that neighborhood and why we have barbed wire and why we have police presence at the school, and why they locked us out of the hallways with chains, um, you know, they chain the doors, um, all of that was, you know, a new experience for me and again raised all these questions like why do you need to chain, can't you buy a lock for the door, like why chains, you know why so publicly display that you don't trust us. Uh, So all of these aspects about about society were not being in my calculus, even though I liked calculus. Uh, and so I found I, I then I, I did a bunch of other, you know, I tried uh, other majors and Latin American studies was was more like about art and, and arguments about, you know, why did Pablo Neruda, you know, uh, were his influences different from, you know, other other influences. And I loved reading the Latin American novel. I, all my friends were taking Shakespeare and taking and reading like the Iliad. And I was reading Latin American literature. Huh. which which was awesome but i always felt a little like you know i didn't have the right cocktail conversation right because right. i was the only person in the room who was reading the latin american literature it's so interesting but do you
0: ever yeah. do you ever um do you ever stop and just think about you know how transformative this trip was on oh. your life and and how in a way it was kind of random you said right yeah. you couldn't choose yeah. where you went do you ever feel like you know do you ever wonder how things might have been different yeah. or what you would have gotten into if maybe they had sent you somewhere else other than I Chile.
1: I agree. I agree. You no, know, it's fascinating. It is, it's it is absolutely transformative. Like it's really shaped my entire life. You know, yeah. I continue to travel to Latin America do to, to, to teach about statistics and evidence-based policy in part because of the kindness that these people showed me when I was six not I mean that other people who know we're living in conditions that you would never imagine you'd bring in another mouth to feed Mm. uh you know you know did um so yeah it it is transformative it has definitely been transformative of my life uh uh yeah
0: would you say that when you were there um you know i know that it was like a total immersion for you Mm, yeah but would you also be able to identify people who listen to the podcast know that I'm a big fan of asking guests about their Mm -hmm. aha moments. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there was a particular moment where you really just felt everything, maybe not necessarily in terms of solidifying what would become like your professional interest, but that moment where you were just like, this is it. Like I am here. And this is just, it's, you just feel like everything in that one moment. And if you have
1: a moment like that from Chile. Um. I don't think I have a particular moment. I, I I think that I felt sort of constantly questioning like it was like a year, and and in fact, the entire experience was constantly questioning experience, mm-hmm. um from questioning how do I get breakfast? Because I didn't speak any Spanish at all, I studied Latin before I went to Chile. Um, To later on, when I spoke Spanish, um, you know, what does that song mean? Why is everybody whistling that song? Why are we hiding the records under the bed? Um, uh, To um, you know, what is going on? Like we we received a phone call in our, so we had the one phone. So you you, you'd get a phone call to our, our our apartments. We had two apartments actually, this' is my na- my family there because one half of one was a was a hair salon mm-hmm. um, there'd be a call to our apartment and then they, I'd, I'd run up and down the stairs to tell people, tell neighbors they had a call. and we received a call that a young man uh, the son of somebody uh, was killed um, and he was a police officer. he was a uh, he was killed by uh, by people who the government was calling terrorists. Who were members of of an armed resistance movement? There were multiple left wing, you know, armed communist, uh, left wing resistance movements at the time, you know. And I remember running upstairs and and like you know conveying this information. And I, there's a lot of crying and, you know, yeah, you know. And it's like it's it's an incredibly complicated situation, right? Like nobody loved the dictatorship. Certainly, that I was surrounded by nor was I surrounded by people who were willing to like hide guns or kill police officers. Like everybody was pretty vivid that the police officers were the sons of your friends. Yeah. And why were they police officers? Well, you could make a good living as a police officer. And there were a lot of people who like didn't have shoes. Like, like you know, if you liked, if you could survive the police officer training and pass the exams, everybody would be proud that you got a job as a police officer. Um, the police officers in Chile are are a militarized force. By the way, they're they're a nationally organized militarized force. So it's mm. it's very different from the, from our, our setup here. Um, so you know, I think it, it's yeah. I didn't have a single moment, but but over and over, I found myself confronting these moments where I thought I kept thinking this shouldn't be the case. Mm. Like well, you shouldn't have to, you know, have neighbors killing neighbors. Um, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to have the kind of inequality that is so vivid. Why is this happening? Like, what is it, what's going on here? Such, so, you know, what can we do about this? You know, and that was also vivid in my, my school in Baton Rouge. And so I think it's, it's more like I kind of wandered around, like, not, un, you know, kind of in a haze, like, you know, what, what environment am I in? <laughs> And and it was like compounded because for two months, I I didn't speak any Spanish at all. So I was like, I don't even know what people are saying around me. Right. Uh, So it was like a year of that. It was a year of like sheer, like trying just to figure out. In fact, I remember trying to figure things out so hard. It was tiring. It was tiring to sit at a table and listen because I was like, so much energy was being spent on like, what just happened? What did they say? I think we're getting ready to go. Are we getting ready to go? Where, <laughs> why, do I need shoes? How long will I be out of the house? Cause I mean, there were moments where they'd like, I'll get up and leave and it would be like a five hour car trip and I'd be like, I'm not prepared for a five hour. What? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so so I didn't have, I don't have so many of those profound moments sad to say. Okay. okay. Um...
0: Well, oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's so fascinating. Sure.
1: You must've sure. learned,
0: uh, I'm sure by the end, sure. it got better, right? You could like pick up on oh. kind of what people were saying.
1: Yeah. In fact, I came home. So that, you know, this is 87. So I would have a monthly phone call with my parents that we would, it would be very, very short. It was very expensive. So I, I really didn't, I didn't speak any English for months at a time. Wow. So <laughs> I, um I was, you know, essentially fluent, you know, I took the I took the the Chilean SAT to go to Chilean University, uh, and even considered staying in Chile. Wow. And, and uh, was like the um, in Chile, the, the Chilean SAT, what they do is they is they they rank you, and they tell you what kind of job you can have, or hmm. uh, what kind of what kind of um, uh, college major you could enter into. And so I was told you will not you're not allowed to be an orthodontist a doctor a lawyer um and like but any major that is below computer scientist I could be in terms of its ranking so the lower the lower ranked things were like elementary school teacher right it's all ridiculous why should elementary school teacher be harder you know <laughs> right then but um uh but That's yeah. so, so wild I, so I was, so, I mean, I was, I mean, I am I mean, you know, bragging, but also reporting, but I was pretty darn good at, at Spanish by the end.
0: When they told you that you could be anything less than a computer scientist, <laughs> did that inspire you to do any
1: of your D&D programming? <laughs> no. <Out of> spite? <laughs> you know, computer science in 1987, it wasn't a thing. Like it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, like it, it, it. It was like, oh, you were gonna go and work for a bank and make databases or something. Like, we we didn't, it, we, it was definitely not as exciting as it is today, uh, for sure. But it was more, the, the, what actually kind of convinced me was I needed to come to the United States where I had choice and freedom. I see. Uh, because I, I wasn't ready, I wasn't ready to commit to a five to six year long college major that would lead and with me kind of in a professional position, which is the model there. Right, right. It makes a lot yeah. of sense.
0: And so you got into, um, you went to Yale, and then for graduate school, um, where did you go there? And how did you become, you know, how did you decide, okay, poli and I really want to focus on this area of research, which yeah. is really kind of, I mean, I'll let you describe it, but sure. really more in the area of, um, you know, what makes governments effective and inner mm-hmm. and, and evidence-based policy
1: yeah so i you know i i um in college i bounced around eventually they they created a new major called ethics politics and economics while i was there and i applied for it because i had already tried out i had i had all the prerequisites for economics and all the prerequisites for philosophy i dropped out of philosophy when i had to write something about why is the the redness of the red ball And again, like it wasn't about morals and ethics and how people should, you know, not kill each other. So I, I, you know, wrote, I wrote a senior thesis. I went back to Chile and, and did a whole bunch of uh, interviews, long in-depth interviews with people in their first year of democracy about like, what does democracy mean? And what does it mean? Like, is democracy Mm. reasonable on the ground? And I was reading these political scientists who were talking at length about democracy comes back as soon as you get the elites to all agree that it's a democracy and then you vote and that's a democracy. And I kept thinking, no, that doesn't make any sense because the people on the ground have just like lived two decades of their life under a dictatorship. How can that be the case for the ordinary people? Right. Um, and so I I did this, you know, I spent a summer interviewing people of all kinds which is pretty transformative. Um, mostly because I was kind of mad about what I was reading but then, I, but then I decided that there, I needed a job because I had to leave university. And I was no way gonna be a professor. My, my mother, father, stepmother, and stepfather were all professors at some point. So I moved to Berkeley and said, what I wanna do is to work on using computers and statistics to uh, engage with human behavior. Oh, also, some, I, I took a course in statistics, two two courses in statistics my senior year of college, because people said, um, look, you just went to Chile and talked to a bunch of people. But what we are really learning is what people say when they're in the room with you, Jake. You know, you need to convince us that there's that if you spoke with more people, this would matter. And I was like, damn right, I will. Like this is the people on the ground are not living a democratic life in the way that you, my advisor at the time, uh, are saying like you're you're missing the whole individual in your discussion of democracy hmm. so i took a stats course and then i was like oh this is like d programming <laughs> this, this is <laughs> great <laughs> you know i've been out of math and pro- programming i was doing all these other things and i was like oh i can make money at this so i discovered after many interview, like many like trying to talking with people that what I, w- what I was looking for was a job in market research. I was like, oh, is that like, you know, using computers to study human beings? <laughs> They're like, yeah, it's called market research. You need a master's degree. I said, okay. oh. So I kind of talked my way into a job where I was, my first job was like writing, typing Excel. Actually it was looking at SPSS output from a VAX and typing the tables into Excel. I looked some paper into Excel and that drove me out of my mind. And so I learned Excel macro language.
0: <laughs> what, like, version, what version of four. SPSS was that for? Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, very old SPSS. And, and this was like before Visual Basic was the macro language of Excel, but I couldn't bear it, I couldn't bear it. So I started to like do stuff. And so I spent two years at Kaiser Health Plan writing uh, SPSS every day and Excel. And then I got really bored there. And then I applied to political science departments because I thought political science would allow me to study what I wanted to study. Uh, it, I didn't have an identity as a political scientist. I wanted to do more statistics. I wanted mm-hmm. to do philosophy. I wanted to learn about psychology.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I uh, applied. I was living in Oakland, California at the time. i had followed my girlfriend. I'd followed a, there was a group of friends. We all decided to go out there Everybody but me had a job. I was still without a job. I tried to be, a, I took the California test to be a bilingual third grade teacher in elementary schools. I volunteered in third grade classrooms because I spoke Spanish. And anyway, I got I uh, got into Berkeley and started, you know, as a political science, stu- uh, you know, PhD student um, uh, at that point in time. Uh, and, you know, and that's kind of where, you know, I still showed up thinking I want to care, I care about violence and about how individual people you know uh react to violence there's a there's a big story about authoritarian regimes oppressing people and and breaking people's bonds from each other but I kept seeing resistance all the time and I kept thinking that, that you can't that's not the full story the story, there's a story of resistance to be told here and if we can learn about where how people resist violence and resist attempts at oppression you know then again we can we can do more and i began to kind of try to study that simultaneously taking up like every statistics course i could
0: yeah and i really like the way that you phrase that i mean i, I have i'm sure as everybody has thought a lot about dictatorships and totalitarian regimes yeah. but the way you phrase this, they have a way of breaking people's bonds from each other
1: that's the well that's the claim right so there's a bunch of there's you know so elaine scarry there's a bunch of people who've written on this they talk about um the atomization of civil society um and they talk like the, east germany was a big example of this where like if everybody's an informant who do you talk to who can you trust yeah um at the same time you know we see, we you know we saw east germans go to the streets um right. And I think every place, every place has this. I I started to study cross burnings in the U.S. I mean, I was really I was looking for data, mm-hmm. um, and I and it was really difficult to find data on this. They weren't doing survey like I mean, dictatorships can't closed political science departments um, mm-hmm. and sociology departments. Um, they kept psychology departments open only on the clinical side, um, mm-hmm. but nobody was doing surveys. Um, you know there was no like mass data collection and so i i was looking around a lot for like look i want to learn about this any way i can um so yeah so i started to do all of you know even eventually i began to get more and more interested in statistics because mm-hmm. it became clear to me that we it was very hard to believe what we were telling ourselves when we were doing data analysis and we were using our statistics and it was very and and as you can kind of tell i was feeling quite passionate about the topics of that that i was studying like i wasn't looking for holes in the literature which probably made me a very bad graduate student but i was like this is super important that we cannot have dictatorships occur we need resistance i didn't know about you know, like George Soros has been funding people to learn about how to do nonviolent resistance. There's a whole bunch of really fascinating work that's been occurring. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know about this at that time. Um, but then, you know, it was really frustrating to read work where, I don't know, there's like, you know, 50 control variables. And, you know, I didn't even know what to think about what, how to interpret the result. You know? And again, this was when we didn't have the ability to run the, you know, the 10,000 regressions that would represent all the different ways you can control for 50 variables, or not even all, a subset of the ways you can control for 50 variables. So I kind of started to dig more and more into statistics. I was definitely rewarded for that. There weren't many people in the political science department who liked it. Mm. You know, I got to, I was, I was cheap. So I installed Linux on my old computer. And so I had to learn how to use Linux. I had to, I learned how to use all the free software, LaTeX, R eventually. Um, and so that took me on this pathway to be a methodologist within political science. I started to write papers on that. My first job was hired to be a methodologist to teach statistics to PhD students at the university of Michigan. Um, and, uh, And because of that, that's how I got involved in all this policy stuff. I'm sorry, it's like a long, it's a long road, but like it's, it's, it's starting to write about the question of how, how do we believe one another when we do social science? Mm. I mean, I sort of came from like social science is crucial because, you know, what the hell is happening in our world? Mm -hmm. And then and then reading papers on it and thinking, I don't know what to make of this. You've just shown me a hundred P values. You've just like, you know, this is, I have no idea what to make of this, this evidence about something that I care so deeply about. Yeah. And then I I, went into that, Go ahead. yeah.
0: No, I was just gonna say, I I, I totally agree. And your enthusiasm for statistics is it probably does for some of our listeners, I'm sure uh, really resonates. Um, when there's one of our faculty members here, Dan Newman, and I actually really like the way that he phrases it. He says that statistics is the lens through which we see social phenomena happen. Yeah, and when he said that, I actually, yeah, like actually, it really calcified a lot of different ways that I had always thought about yeah. statistics, but I hadn't really put it to such eloquent words. Yeah, that, oh, yeah, like the really amazing thing about what we get to do is we can kind of elevate the arguments and, and really form connections with each other better through conversation yeah. and through dialogue we kind of share a mutual understanding of what something is based on you know our common understanding of how we prove and talk and discuss and verify certain things which is a super cool thing
1: it does i mean it gives us a shared language it allows us to sort of um it gives us standards so you know uh you know to. This week, my students are talking about hypothesis tests, and the question is, how do you know when you have a good hypothesis test? And we say, well, a good hypothesis test should reject the truth very rarely and should should, you know, uh, uh, you know, reject falsehood falsehoods very rapidly. So it should have low false positive rate and high power. You know, so it makes a lot of it definitely, it definitely makes a lot of sense. And so I started to work on this 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 problem. I met a a good friend, so I was at at Michigan. uh, You know, my my wife is a political science professor, and so she was hired first by University of Michigan, and then I was the spousal hire. Uh, And then I met a good friend there, Ben Hansen, who was a actually like a philosophy of science PhD from from Berkeley, but he became he's become a statistician. He's in the stats department. And we were talking about experiments, the beginnings of field experiments in political science and how the, their analysis wasn't as clear to us. Like we were, in fact, worried about whether the hypothesis tests had uncontrolled false positive rates. And we were saying, you know, it felt so policy relevant to say, you know, you should do this or that in regards getting people to turn out to vote. But if the p-values that you were using could were misleading, then that would not be good. Mm -hmm. And so we began to work on the statistics of randomized experiments Mm -hmm. um, together, and it was that that connected me to to policy, because at the same time, more and more people in policy were running randomized experiments, but were using the statistical tools that they learned that were designed not for randomized experiments.
0: Yeah. Taking a step back and I, I'd love to bring yeah. it forward to the future at sure. the same time and talking about some of these, uh, organizations you work for that sure. do these kinds of applied, um, uh, policy related experiments. Yeah. Sure. Um, so can you tell us, um, you know, from your vantage point, what exactly is this thing called the, uh, OES? Yeah. Um, sure. maybe even about, um, yeah, let's start with the, um, let's start with the OES and
1: the, um, white house's old uh, social yeah. behavioral science thing. sure exactly so you know the under the obama administration um they you know they the the obama administration uh was willing to take a gamble on bringing in some social scientists to to help provide guidance of many kinds um uh and uh uh maya Shankar deserves a lot of credit for kind of like you know suggesting the idea and kind of organizing organizing people to kind of like you know, get the surface, the idea. So they decided to not create a council of, of social and behavioral science advisors like they have for economics. Like right now there's a group called the council of economic advisors and it's like high status ec- economists who take time off from the university to advise the, the administration. And it's kind of a white paper group, which is it's really important, uh, but that's their model, that model of the way that economics, you know, connects. Now economics connects by two ways. There's this kind of like advising role. And then they decided we're going to actually do projects. We're going to actually try to change, you know, take actual actions that the government does. And we're going to try to use what we've learned from the lab and from surveys and from academic research. And we're going to try to to use that to design new ways for the government to interact with its citizens. And we're going to use what we know about statistical methodology and about you know what what it means to have evidence that something worked or didn't work or have evidence in favor of a theory uh and apply that as well and so they created one could see one one could actually
0: one could actually see from your history how you must have you must have had your mind blown by this organization
1: oh it was amazing
0: um this is seems like such a
1: (laughs) it was perfect it was perfect yeah so we you know, we, yeah. I was on my wife, Kara uh, Wong's her name. Um, she had a fellowship to, to live at, at the, there's at the Russell Sage Foundation in New York City. It came with an apartment in New York City. It's an amazing place. She got to have lunch with all these Nobel prize winners every day and write her like all these papers she was writing. It's, it's super. So I took a leave from the university of Illinois and needed a job. I needed like literally like needed salary. Uh, uh, because we had just taken a, we did just taken a sabbatical and remote teaching was no, was not an option. And it, and so I asked people, where, how can I work? And somebody said, there's this group called the White House Social and Behavioral Sciences Team that they're forming. So I called them and I said, I saw your call for applications. I'm not really an expert in, in any psychological literatures or behavioral economics. But I'm really interested in how you do social science and a particular RCTs, the statistics of RCTs. And I had by Randomized that, control trials. Randomized control trials. And by then I had been involved in a couple of randomized controlled trials in policy world. I had one in, and I'd been working on one in Nigeria on uh, on like countering violent extremism messages in the media, um, I, et cetera, et cetera is the wrong word. But basically I'd been involved, I'd, I'd been involved in some applied things. And they said please join our team in fact we would love would you please help would you please do help help us do statistics in order to make the world a better place and i was like oh my god yes please and and i always felt like a little weird like i'd be there and somebody would would have written you know multiple papers on child child care payments uh, uh you know child support payments and the problems of families and you know and I was like oh my god i know nothing about the federal policy or the state policy or even the social phenomenon of divorce and child support payments and wow i mean how can i be in the room with these people but you know eventually it became clear that i could play a role i could be on i could be on the team i could be like the bass player in the band you know like i could like help support everybody and improve all of their work uh and then learn from them so it was an amazing experience and it was called the White House Social and Behavioral Sciences Team, um, in part, I think, to get some buy-in from the rest of the federal government. But it was simultaneously called the the Office of Evaluation Sciences. It was always mm-hmm. called that. And I'll show this to you. Your listeners can't see it, but like, you know, this is my badge, and it says GSA on it, General Services Administration. I don't know if you can see it, but um, mm-hmm. I can see it but we've always had had offices inside of the general services administration which is this the, the the group the part of the US government that that buys your paper clips owns pays rent on your buildings um helps you design websites it it has general services so it is not threatening you know the somebody coming in and saying i'm coming from the white house it always puts the people civil servants a little on edge because they know the people in the White House are, are, are thinking about re-election, they're, they're here for a few years and then they're gone, and your job is like uh, pro- providing food stamps for, for, for food aid for poor families regardless of who's in power. So in fact, even when I was there and our website was sbst.gov I would introduce myself as part of the General Services Administration, and they'd say, "Oh, General Services, mm-hmm. yeah, you guys do the fire alarm inspections." And we go, "Oh yeah, it's fire alarms, social science, you know, all of it is very uncontroversial. We're here to help." Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so when the when the Trump administration came in, there was no the White House itself wasn't going to to. Support having anybody sitting inside the White House. So we had one. Maya sat in the White House or in a building that's affiliated with the White House. Everybody else on the team sat outside the White House, and so Maya left, and then the rest of us just continued to our work. Actually, um, as if nothing, almost as if nothing had had happened. We just didn't introduce ourselves by the by using the word White House. It was always office evaluation yeah. sciences, so that's continued. we they've done like a hundred randomized control trials. The team now has forty people on it. Um, they do studies of all kinds. Um, so yeah, it's a super fun group of people, and they and they have academics come through for one to two years at a time. You know, questions like um and, the team, yeah, good.
0: Well, I was just going to say, um, you know, in addition to, let's definitely talk about what they do and and yeah. the kinds of um, experiments that they've run before to make government more effective but maybe it's also worth kind of taking a step back and appreciating not only this being like an ideal fit for what seemed like a lot of your different interests but is this kind of uh, is this some kind of landmark? achievement for humanity. I mean just think mm-hmm. about conceptually yeah. what this is. I, I mean really it's it's a bunch of people who are getting together and saying, "Hey this thing that's a government which we've had for, you know, yeah. thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to we're going to use science to make that more effective for its constituents."
1: Like it seems like a kind of landmark concept. It it's it is amazing. It's it's not and it's not without precedent. Um I felt okay. like it was without precedent at the time, and certainly the the the, the kind of deep embedding uh, and the, and the kind of like quick turnaround uh, and the focus on behavior um, is pretty new. Um, one thing I realized was that in the nineteen sixties, the federal government began to require randomized control trials. To, in order to learn hmm. about, say, the effectiveness of big welfare policies. And so there were multiple studies with that cost tens of millions of dollars. There was, like, for example, the idea of a co payment uh, for healthcare hmm. comes in part from a study where they randomly assigned, I think, I forget how many people, maybe 2,000 families to free healthcare and 2,000 families to pay something and 2,000 families to do something else, like something like 6,000 families that were part of the, oh, I can't believe I'm forgetting the name of this, it's the study, it's like 1978. And what they discovered is that the families who were randomly assigned to pay nothing for healthcare, and this was, you needed people in Congress to pass like a law to to run the study, the Rand Health Insurance Experiment. You can download the data, in fact, it's fascinating. They recorded the outcomes, all of their health outcomes, and they discovered that people who went to the doctor—they they, did—they went to the doctor more. If you got free health, free health care, in 1978, when you went to the doctor more, you didn't necessarily have better, like heart disease outcomes, or necessarily hmm. better other kinds of outcomes. And so they said these are wasteful people; they're wasting healthcare dollars because they're just using them and they're not getting any they're not getting healthier. So what we need to do is make people think twice before they come in to see the doctor. So we're gonna make a copay. So it becomes vivid to them that they, but they have to pay a cost to come in. Right. Um, um, and I mean, it's a funny study because, so like that was like science, right? Now it's weird science in some senses, because if you randomly assign people to have free healthcare today, I suspect that more people getting more healthcare, their heart disease will be managed better now because between 1978 and now, for example, breast cancer was a killing diagnosis in the seventies. And it's not always a killing diagnosis today because we can catch it easier. We now know a lot more, we have better chemotherapy. We have, you know, other sorts of things, right? Uh, You know, in 1940, what is it? FDR dies of um, hypertension, right? Whereas like now, uh, it's like less than a cent a day or something like that to, to like manage hypertension. Um, so, so it's an, it's an interesting question about generalizability of these, of these scientific studies, but, but yeah, so, so there were these scientific studies, but there were, it was like, it took millions and millions of dollars, um, gigantic corporations. So like, you know, Rand and MDRC and Mathematica and Apt were, were, were created to manage the incredible work required to like, get all the hospital records of thousands of people over many years, et cetera. So, but what's interesting about this move that the SPST was part of, or the OES is part of, and the, the, the behavioral insights team in the UK was part of, is that the idea wasn't just like once in a while, we're going to do a gigantic big study. In fact, we're going to try to make every day a study. We're going to try to like wrap the idea mm-hmm. of... of engaging with literature and producing evidence be part of your daily life instead of like a gigantic, surprising event. And so that's what the Evidence Act uh, of 2019, you know, is asking the federal government to do. That's what the evidence.gov website is showing you that every agency has its evaluation plans now. Um, So there's anyway, so there is some history. But it is a it's an, it's an interesting it, but it is a big move like like way more people instead of having like two high profile academic PIs and then hundreds of people uh, working for who are all amazing researchers working for MDRC you now have mm-hmm. like hundreds of academics doing many many kind of smaller projects um, and, and, you know
0: yeah. Yeah. Do you think Pinochet would have led an SBS team in his government? That's
1: a fascinating question because, (laughs) well, remember the Chicago boys, he loved this group of young academic uh, uh, economists who had a very strong belief in uh, about how uh, uh, an economy should be run. And actually, like, he listened to them now the the dilemma is is that is that they as a, as far as i can tell the chicago boys so they were all like chicago phd's in economics and they were really mad at, at like how the united states was was it would ignore the ideas of the sort of neoliberal uh, economic ideas um and they said you know part of the reason we have all this poverty is because we have all the governments in creating an efficiency and we are organizing our our economy, and if only we could do it this way, all of the math would tell us that our our theoretical models would tell us we'd have a better economy and a better life. And so Pinochet did it in, in, you know, like basically like got rid of labor unions. And if you protested, they could disappear you. And so you couldn't have resistance to the ideas. What, What, so Pinochet, in a way like, Pinochet like connected to academia but i don't think that those people huh. were willing to publish null no results right whereas like the SP, where they, where the oes half of the studies are null no results half of the studies somebody says oh yeah social norms is really effective if you tell people who have a hotel room that other people in their hotel room pick up their towels then they're less likely to you know then they'll pick up their towels right we have all these results if you tell people about their neighbors uh, energy usage they'll adjust their energy usage Well, like I don't know, like the four or five, uh, uh, you know, attempts to use that in the OES haven't worked. Like, you know, uh, so you know, we're instead of coming into government and saying social norms is a lever that we will use in order to change uh, behavior, we're saying there's really good reason to think that social norms is a lever we could use to change behavior. Let's see what happens, and then we publish null results. And then we help right. science, you know.
0: It's a it's a big um, it's a big methodological step up. The yeah, publishing so. of the no
1: results. I yeah. think so, too. I think that's one of the hidden benefits. I think a lot of people or think like the OES is amazing. And the Brit- the behavioral insights team in the UK were amazing for bringing academics kind of out of the ivory tower and kind of creating these collaborations between these ex civil servants experts with academic experts and and that's that takes a ton of work and and is very difficult and is really productive but i think a big deal is the willingness to be wrong and like constantly learn to say like this isn't i'm not embarrassed if i'm wrong i'm that just means i need to move i've i've learned something and that's big for academics and and people in the government alike yeah
0: absolutely and i think also um Maybe you could comment, but also being able to test some of the, the boundary conditions of what we thought were, you know, previously very, very robust scientific findings and finding, you know, under these new frameworks that, well, maybe sometimes they work and maybe sometimes they actually don't work as well as we thought they might.
1: I agree. I think it's been, it's actually scientifically productive. We haven't done a lot, enough of that, I think. But when we find these null results, those are the moments where we sit around the table going, well, why is that? and we're then we're creating new theory
0: yeah you know
1: we're interrogating the theory itself so that hasn't been the big selling point yet but i think the universities should hear this or the, the you know the scientific you know administrative apparatus of our country should hear this more you know right now we're saying we're going to improve government and yes we will improve government and in part because we're 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 making people think about learning instead of failure and so there's less hiding of of you know of mistakes, etc., um, and we're collaborating, and we're and you know and we're interpreting the literature. So there's a lot of benefits to government for sure, mm-hmm. but there's a ton of benefits to science, really, mm-hmm. when yeah. we discover that out of the lab this works or doesn't work, or social norms among doctors with prescribing opioids is really different some way or another uh, yeah. than than you know ordinary people and their energy use in their homes.
0: Totally. And so the Office of Evaluation Sciences, or the OES, has mm-hmm. done all of these different RCTs um, in different branches of government um, you know, they, and they range from energy usage to, to, to messaging people to get yeah. them to sign up for, for certain benefits. Yeah. Is there, is there any particular study, you know, maybe one or two of these, do you find like particularly striking for one reason or another? So that when you give examples, like uh, this is a really cool example of a study that OES did, and it's amazing for these reasons, is there like a, a study or two that, that really hits home for you?
1: Well, um, so I think there's a couple of them. Um. They're both fairly nerdy. I mean, I'm so so. They've done a pretty good job of of actually summarizing like how many millions of people they've helped because they really have helped like more people go to college by filling out the federal aid forms, uh, you know, reducing problems with getting food aid. They've just done a ton of work. Um, so one one study this is like the most nerdy study, um, but I like it. You keep saying purposes. that it's nerdy, and I'm I keep leaning in more when you say Good. that. So. <laughs> yes. so, I was part of a study. So the, the U.S. This is called the GSA Auction Study. So as part of this, I, I was helping them. They, the federal government has has a lot of stuff. They have old parts of the Hubble Telescope. They have um, sets of of uh, Rolex watches that they have confiscated from drug lords. They have um, file cabinets from decommissioned buildings they have stuff and it costs money to warehouse the stuff and they can't just be like, Hey, anybody want a Rolex watch? (laughs) Like, no, you have to, like, it has to be transparent and they, they auction it and, and, and thousands of items nobody cared about. Nobody was bidding on them. And so they said, Hey, you know, behavioral scientists, this is like a marketing project. How can you help people, uh, you know uh yeah. you know but get this stuff out of our warehouses because we don't know like what do we where do we how do we put old black hawk helicopters into the trash heap like the cost of of decommissioning that helicopter is so high um right so they randomly assigned uh people who seem to be the kind of people who would buy like sets of pencils and helicopters to get messages so they they did that and and uh, and they and and they 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 figured out how much was was earned like well how much did people bid and did people bid so they could get rid of these this the point wasn't to earn more money really it, but the point was to you know get rid of this stuff and they did a hypo, they did a t test and the t test now remember the outcome goes from zero with so there's eight hundred thousand emails there's six hundred thousand 000 zeros of people who didn't do anything. Uh, and then 200,000 values that range from the number one to the number 2 million. They did a T-test, and the T-test said, not significant. The average amount bid by the people in the treatment group with the cool, behaviorally, you know, insightful treatment was like 20 extra bucks and with a huge confidence interval. Mm-hmm. And so at first, people thought, well, I guess this, there's no effect. The behavioral science... That would lead us to believe, you know, whatever the inducements we were making to like remember and not procrastinate and these kinds of things, you know, commitment devices they don't work. Well, the interesting thing here is that that is such a skewed outcome variable that mean differences have basically no power. We know this, right. but if you only think of causal inference as an average treatment effect, you'd stop there and say, it "Didn't work." Policy makers, don't do, stop the policy. So I did a rank-based test. Mm-hmm. and the p-value had, like, 15 zeros. Mm. Like, there's no way we would see the differences that we see under the null of, no, if there were no, really nothing, if there was really no effect. Right. And in fact, it's very clear that those in the treatment group bid more than those in the control group. But the average bid difference was not very big.
0: Is this this is a thing that anybody can bid on? So like we can yeah. go to these auctions. Well,
1: we, I can't because I'm a GSA employee. But <laughs> you okay. right? yes, yes. We, they, we, they sell how they sell lighthouses. They sell. Okay.
0: We're gonna have to post the, the link to our to our GSA auctions.gov.
1: GSA, GSA. auctionsgovernor i uh, I'll I I will check it. Uh, GSA auctions. So that was a cool moment where like as somebody who really wants to do statistics, I could say, hey. Like you're taking the statistics and you're saying oh, we're going to do statistics. It's going to be a randomized controlled trial. And what does statistics mean? It means a t-test or a, a linear regression model. Right. That, and and so you know, not significant. So and and we're going to publish. This is another another of our null results that we're proud to publish. But it the null result depended on the st- choice of the statistic in this particular case. That right. the the focus on means was too strong. And if you just were able to step back and say, what I really want to know is whether they, the two groups differed Mm -hmm. or whether the treat treated group paid, you know, paid more then you could, you you don't, you're not required to just use the mean. So that's kind of a long winded thing, but I liked it because it's about the stat, the statistics, right. You know, Uh, uh, because everybody was like, oh yeah, I know causal inference, you know, t-test, least squares. Totally, and I like this too because now
0: I can bid on a White House, um, yeah, or I, a lighthouse. I'm i probably not going to be able to afford it, but I can put in my bid anyway.
1: Yeah, there it is. Oh man, <laughs> twenty twenty Lincoln Continental limousine. That's what's go. on there right now. <laughs> All
0: right, I'll have to check that out after the after the show. Um, but okay, so the OES, the Office of Evaluation Sciences, they do these these randomized controlled trials to try to make government more effective. What are what are some of the challenges? for a researcher who works in this space, it must not be similar to, you know, the way a lot of other, you know, academics kind of work. Right. Um, what's it like?
1: Well, so so let me start with like a benefit, which is that Please. most researchers are, you know, in the, my academic life, I spend weeks writing uh, proposals to get money to, you know, you know, to you know, say, please, I would love $100,000 to run a few surveys. And it takes like weeks and weeks to write that proposal. It's almost always rejected. Um, it takes years to kind of like eventually get the money. And then you can interview 2,000 people or something like that. Maybe it's a $50,000, you know, but, you know, I find myself writing huge proposals for, you know, to fund one graduate student you know, to get thirty thousand dollars to fund one graduate student.
0: Right.
1: In the OES only works with agencies who are already collecting data for their, you know, for their own purposes. So, the Veterans Administration is recording whether every veteran, or the Veteran Administration, say of Louisiana, one of my grad students did a, a wrote a paper on this fortuitously right before COVID, um, everybody was citing this paper they have data on every veteran. So they have like 100,000 data points gathered on each person, you know, twice a year or every time you come into the Veterans Administration. So there's no proposal writing to get underpowered, to fund underpowered social science studies. Um, It's millions of data points that are available to you for free because they're all already being collected. Um, The challenges are, are multiple. One, you you have to work within the administrative data that's already flowing in. If you ask to do a survey, that is a huge problem because the federal government cannot ask the American people to spend time to do a survey without really good reason. At the bottom of your tax forms, there's a line that says OMB number such and such and such and so. That, That number says that the federal government Tested how long it takes you to fill out this form, because they know that the time that you're spending to fill out the form is like a tax on you. And mm-hmm. since they're the federal government, they have they have force. Like you could be, they could jail you, right? Or like the census, you have to respond to the census. Right. And there's like huge hoopla. Oh my gosh, this is like authoritarianism, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so I appreciate that the government says, no, no, before we collect new data from people, given that we are the source of power and force, we have to be really, really careful. So if you wanna do a survey of people, which you might think is just so trivial, all I wanna know is ask people these five questions that is not showing up in the administrative data. Like all I know is whether the veterans are getting vaccinated, not they're, do they believe false news about vaccinations. And all I wanna do is survey right. a random sample of the 100,000 in Louisiana or whatever, you know, cause there's veterans agencies that are separated around the country. Um, man, does that take a lot of effort because you have to mm-hmm. convince the government that it's worth burdening people with that survey. So it takes like right. six months.
0: So collecting them. new data
1: is yeah. very challenging. And surveys in particular. And You can add census data. You can, any data that's flowing in, that's administrative that doesn't add like passive data, as long as it doesn't violate anybody's privacy um, and and as long as it's already been collected, it's fine. Right. Um, the, the other big challenge is um is relationships. So, you know, if if my job is, you know, uh, vaccinating veterans, um, my job is not helping you write a paper. And it shouldn't be, my your job should be vaccine, you know, getting these people, like all these elderly people, you know, you know, their flu vaccines, let alone COVID or whatever. Or, you know, your job is ensuring that like people when they go shopping with their their uh you know electronic um, benefits card and they're in the checkout aisle with their kids so they don't suddenly like lose their ability to buy buy their food so um you know, as an academic you don't you, you have to figure out a way to have a, to to have a a, a relationship they want to learn to do a better job of their but you don't actually know how to do a better job because you 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 you're you know you've never tried to like figure out how to get food aid cards to f- tens of thousands of families in California. You've never tried to, you, you, to get veterans to be vaccinated, right? So so there's a bunch of kind of relationship building that goes on um, in order to kind of create trust and in order to figure out what, what the project should be like. And this is actually part of the special sauce of the Office of Evaluation Sciences itself. So they they because it, it's an organization that transcends any individual academic, that when a civil servant is working with the OES, they know there'll always be someone there to support them. Whereas an academic might say, oh, I got tenure, oh I'm a dean now, oh, I'm going to work at Facebook or you know an academic can move away and then suddenly they're you know who's around to finish the project right. So the OES, for example, purposely does not put names on any of the projects they work on, because it's always done by a team, and everybody works as if we are on a team. So that's a big change to many academics who say, oh, this is how I write, this is how I do a data analysis, this is how I collaborate. And you join the OES, and they say, you know, you you, you have to work in such a way that somebody else could take all of your code and run it on their machine. Sure. And this isn't just, you know, scientific replicability police talking here like we really have to do this because if you get sick and then you know the head of the Veterans Administration says what goes on what's going on we have to deliver on this right so a lot of these these practices that seem a bit burdensome like pre-analysis plans become really operationally important um so though so anyway so I was talking about relationships and then about processes uh so it is so that's difficult and then you know, you're working in the federal government, like, you know, like uh, this is. What do I have under my desk? I have this like Dell computer that I really hate that I have to use, that is completely com- controlled by somebody else. And as a nerdy person who spent years installing Linux and building my own computers, with and having preferences over hard drives and fans for my CPU, it's very difficult. <laughs> you have know, to be told you can't you have no rights to install an r package on your <laughs> own tel- computer. right that's a minor thing it's more of a problem for me than other people
0: makes sense makes sense though um so we've talked a lot about you know kind of the the origins of the evidence-based policy movement yeah. um what do you see as being some of the the next steps or the things that this niche will have to tackle kind of in the future.
1: Yeah. So there's a few things that are going to be happening. One is it's spreading. So today I was just on a call with um, people from the state of North Carolina. North Carolina now has an $8 million evaluation fund that you can apply to to do scientific studies and you're required to post a pre-analysis plan. So we're going to see more and more places doing more and more of this kind of work. There's certainly a lot of interest in data collection. So, you know, I know that like, there's gonna be an expansion of, of you know, uh, I just saw today about there's there's all this collection about about police civilian interactions being done in Chicago, the invisible, uh, I forget the name of the, the this group, they're expanding it to other cities. So we're gonna see, it wouldn't surprise me if every, medium-sized city and certainly every state had some kind of capability to talk with social and behavioral scientists sciences scientists and to uh, do Rcts um, and gather data to to learn about about you know whether or not their ideas make sense and we're going to see more null results being posted um, and you know more learning uh, uh, as a way of kind of providing services learning and providing, as being more, more sort of like explicit. Um, I think we're gonna see more diverse research methodologies than RCTs. So we're the federal government's really interested in this. I have now led two trainings in using matching regression discontinuity, the difference in differences. Um, we're doing our first uh, uh, analysis plan for large scale qualitative in-depth interviews um, right now, um, we don't know. It, it, we have the templates for analysis plans as part of the, on the OAS website, but we're gonna, you know, change them as we go forward. So that so that there's increasing diversity in ways that we learn, uh, which I think is great, really, really useful. Um, the other thing we that we have we haven't done as much of as we as I as I like is that we're not we haven't been taking the beneficiaries into account. Um, I say beneficiaries because it's like because that's kind of the word that people in the federal government talk about as like the the veterans who are receiving the benefits from the veterans administration or the or you know anybody anybody who's kind of engaging with the federal government. Other people might talk about community, right? The question is like you're right now, my focus is I'm the academic and I'm talking with the decision maker, a policy decision maker. Um possibly indirectly with legislators, but mostly it's like me and some civil servant who's trying to who's trying to do their job, improve how they do their job, right? And it's super wonderful. I learned so much. Um, and hopefully I, you know, they learn from me and it's collaborative, but their job is like improving the lives of people who are applying for US citizenship. Mm-hmm. But I'm not talking to the people in the lines talk, who are applying to US citizenship. I'm not asking them, what What do you see are the problems with your inner inner engagement with the u s. immigration system? Um, do, do any of you know R or Python? Would you like to analyze the become citizen scientists? Mm. Um, this came up vividly in Washington, d c, where they did a police body cam experiment, probably the best police body camera experiment, two thousand police officers. And you know, it was an amazing collaboration between the Chief of Police. Of Washington D.C., um, the you know the the authority and encouragement from the mayor of D.C. and the lab at D.C., which is another of these groups like the OES, um, mm-hmm. but it's not like the union of police and Black Lives Matter had were, were in the room when they were designing the study as right. much. And that I think could have, I think it was it was actually an excellent study. I don't think there's any, anything wrong with the study, but you can imagine that the study might have added an arm or it might have you know collected a bit different data if the groups and the people who are sort of, you know, you know, for, for whom the, the, the policies changing their lives were able to be a part of this, right? And I'd like to see more of that. And, and, and I'm being vague about it because it's not like we know how to do that yeah but that but i see so anyway i see those those different angles and and you know as you and also um i like i would like to see more rank based tests
0: excellent excellent um well jake we're we're about at time um i want to thank you so much for for coming on the podcast um any final parting thoughts um about this evidence based policy movement from your I think fascinating and unique vantage point here um maybe and it sounds like there's been a lot of really hopeful things to talk about but what's something that you're particularly hopeful um, about for this particular movement
1: well i'm really hopeful that it starts to uh enhance our theories our scientific theories like i Mm -hmm. i really hope that as we we begin to we begin to to change our understanding of human behavior and society and politics as just the sheer number of studies mounts uh, you know the OES has done a hundred RCTs each RCT having tens of thousands of observations you know it's it's really large scale science and I'd like to see I, and I'm super optimistic I think that if I was you know a PhD student at this point in time I'd really be looking to all those null, result, null results and saying what does this mean? you know and and then, going and collecting, trying to run an RCT with a million observations in it. You know, that it, 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 it's just an amazing moment. I mean, the, gov- the government side is really exciting about in terms of how how I think more and more people are living better and better lives and how civil servants are like feeling great about their work, you know, and, and it's fun to collaborate. But I do think that, you know, I'd love to say, I, I think that social sciences is going to have a lot of like rapid growth from this if we can figure out a way to harness it um uh you know appropriately you know how do we how do we get people seeing the like all this amazing work as being part of of science uh so i am looking forward to that
0: awesome i'm looking forward to um jake thank you and so much for for coming on the podcast it's been awesome talking with you all right thanks so much